1: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Matthew Hart about his book Extraterritorial, a political geography of contemporary fiction, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Matt Hart is Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He's the author of Nations of Nothing But Poetry, Modernism, Transnationalism, and Synthetic Vernacular Writing, which was published in 2010. Matt specializes in 20th and 21st century English literature with an emphasis of modern and contemporary literature and political history. Hello, Matt. Thank you for joining me today.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: And congratulations on this recent publication. So in the introduction part, you explain in detail what uh, extraterritor- extraterritoriality is. The explanation is also preceded by some background. Before we talk uh, about the term and concept itself, would you share with us what prompted you to write on extraterritoriality?
0: Well, the original idea for the book came more than a decade ago now when I was teaching an independent study with my then graduate student, now uh, herself, a a, a doctor, Tanya Laun-Hecht. This was when I was still teaching at the University of Illinois. Uh, And that independent study was on the German writer W.G. Sebald, and Tanya and I both noticed that he used this word, extraterritorial, in quite often and in quite an interesting variety of places. So we began to ask ourselves why this kind of ugly Latinate legal term um, that's difficult to say and horrible to write um, was used so regularly in these very beautiful and poetic and melancholy meditations on things like the history of the Second World War or the history of the herring in the North Sea. Um, And so that began a kind of process collectively, the two of us looking into the meaning of this word and into its histories and so on. And, you know, you very quickly learned that a word like extraterritorial means literally beyond the territory. And that makes sense for a writer like Sabold, who is a writer who was himself an emigré. He moved from Germany to England um, when he was relatively young and led left you know most of his life outside of the country that was his home and that was the language that he wrote about. So it's a word that evokes a lot of ideas around exile, migration. The transnational all themes that were important to my first book and all themes that are really important i think to any study of modern and contemporary literature um but the really interesting thing about extraterritoriality is it has also this very specific legal and political history it's not just a metaphor for exile or for migration it names a very specific set of historical and legal conditions under which states have done things like exploited um, other states. So it's important to the history of colonialism and empire. It's also crucial to the history of diplomacy. Embassies and consuls work according to a juridical logic of extraterritoriality, where we sort of pretend that, you know, the American consul in France is really American soil um, on French territory. Um, And it's also been crucial to things like the history of maritime trade and exploration. There's a really important moment in the early modern period when states agree that they aren't going to make territorial claims to the oceans. And that's crucial for, again, the development of European imperialism and maritime colonialism. But also it's still crucial to networks of foreign trade um, and the way in which people, commodities and information move about the world, the Internet. Is Likewise in many respects an, an extraterritorial space a space that's governed by a whole set of regulations um, That states and national governments agree to but which exists beyond the power of any one of those states even very powerful states like the United States Can't claim to actually have juridical or governmental authority over the internet and then finally outer space I mean who knows whether we'll actually ever end up living in an extraterrestrial fashion Uh, But likewise, the same kinds of legal regimes that apply to the oceans and to air spaces often apply to to the space beyond our atmosphere as well. So there just seem to be an increasingly interesting number of ways in which the concepts, the language, the history of extraterritoriality seem to describe really important dimensions of 21st century literature and history and culture.
1: Yeah, I was um, really intrigued by um, that uh, moment uh, in your introduction when uh, you draw attention to our understanding of oceans and um, how we perceive ourselves while being... Outside some conventional geographical space, which is uh, designed and which is somehow determined by political terms. However, when we find ourselves in, in the water, so to speak, so uh, something happens to um, how we perceive ourselves, right? And something happens to how our understanding of the world as well is uh, shaped. So, this leads uh, me to um, uh, my next question about uh, this definition. So, you define 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 extraterritorial as open, in part, and as an uh, opposite to uh, territorial which is understood Mm as closed. However, uh, these are not absolute oppositions. They are oppositions which shape each other. And in other words, there is some um, interdependence here, which is negotiated by each of these concepts. Uh, Would you comment on the three components of your argument about uh, extraterritoriality that you outline as historical, literary, critical, and conceptual?
0: Okay. So, I mean, as you point out, the... I try to be quite careful in defining how conceptually and historically uh, extraterritoriality functions. Um, There's not a huge amount of scholarship dealing with extraterritoriality outside of areas like international relations and legal and political history. So it's a concept that has been used somewhat by literary critics and scholars of culture and art, but not a great deal. And to the extent that it has come up in the scholarship, it's tended to be simplified somewhat. So that one thing that happens, for instance, is there's too much emphasis on what you were just talking about, the open uh, and liberatory dimension of the extraterritorial. So that you go into a space like the oceans and none of the normal rules apply. Um, You're in some new oceanic utopian space of possibility of liberation. And that is one really important part of the of the puzzle. That's why I begin the book by talking about a a curatorial project uh, from Israel, ex-territory project, in which artists are exhibiting video artworks projected onto the sails of yachts that are sailing around the eastern Mediterranean between Israel and Cyprus, but outside of Israeli territorial waters. And that means that it's a place in which Arab and Israeli uh, artists can exhibit together outside of the context of things like the Palestinian Palestinian boycott of Israeli cultural institutions. So that open part is, is there, but there's also the closed dimension or the dystopian dimension. And that's when, if you think about things like the sort of extra-legal detention centers in which terrorist suspects were imprisoned, uh, detained, often tortured after 9-11, Those are areas that the artist Trevor Paglen has called blank spots on a map. They're these deniable areas which are, from a legal point of view, if not a physical point of view, outside of
1: the government
0: or the human rights obligations of any particular state. They're extraterritorial too, but they are absolutely not spaces of freedom. And so you have both of those poles, the open and the closed. And then beyond that, extraterritoriality can apply to people, And to spaces. So it's not just an aspect of geography, it's also an aspect of personhood. And the perfect example of that is in a city like Shanghai in the period between the Opium Wars and World War II. So from the 1840s through to the 1940s, there's a hundred years in which the international city, the international settlement in Shanghai, the British didn't make any claim to the land of Shanghai like they did to Hong Kong. It's not a territorial. Imperial colonial claim British people just walked around like in little bubbles of English law immune from from the Chinese officials and from Chinese uh, from prosecution by the Chinese legal system and that was enough Right. You don't need to make a claim to the land if your people are insulated uh, from any uh, sovereign authority of the place that you're working in or the place that you're occupying and so that's a situation where An international city is produced not out of a claim to territory, but out of the creation of new forms of legal personhood. So open, closed, place, person, those are the four coordinates that are always in play when we're talking about extraterritoriality. And sometimes, obviously, the sort of needle moves more to one side of place or person or more to one side of the open, closed opposition. But there's never a time at which all four are not In place to some degree so then you refer to the the three sort of claims that the book is making so moving from that definition of the term to what the specific arguments are and the first is that literature can be understood as mediating geographical experience and here I'm building on a lot of work that's happened over the last 30 years or so in the subfield called literary geography in which we have learned to think about geographic and spatial experiences not just as Things that novels or poems or movies are about but rather as forces that help shape the internal aesthetic qualities of things like novels so part of the book is an exploration of novelistic setting uh, of what setting means how we can better theorize and historicize setting in contemporary fiction and how we can think of setting not just as the kind of where and when of a novel but as an active force that's shaping the novel from within. The second claim is an historical claim, um, and it builds upon the work of geographical theorists like E.L. Weissman or like Felicity Scott, um, and that's that the political geography of the 21st century is increasingly extraterritorialized. So that if historically there was a move from very parcelized and complex political geographies in the medieval and early modern period through to the territorial state, starting in the late 17th, 18th century, that another historical transition is happening now away from these nicely geometrically ordered territorial states and back into a political geography that is much more complicated, much messier and in which states are willingly subdividing and disaggregating their juridical and political space in order to produce the thing we call globalization. And so part of the argument there is that we make a huge mistake if we think of globalization as a movement into a borderless world. Globalization is instead better understood, I argue, as moving into a world in which borders are multiple and mobile. It's not a lack of borders. It's the border now shifts and appears at different places, or the border is partial. Right, So the border is not between one country and another, but it might be a border that regulates the movement of people, but not the movement of goods. Or it might regulate the movement of people and goods, but not the movement of information. Um, and those borders may occur at the edge of a country, like the fortified Mexico-US border, but they might also appear within a nation state. So, for instance, in an international airport, um, which might be right bang in the middle of a city, that's bang in the middle of a, of a country. So, there's the literary claim and the and the historical claim, um, and then the sort of broader conceptual claim gets us back to the arguments about the four parts of extraterritoriality and how we can better understand the complexity. Um, of that concept and of that history.
1: Um, Well, you did um, uh, draw attention to the genre of novel. And Mm. uh, I'm wondering uh, why this genre appears to be this rich source for your analysis.
0: Yeah, it's not, I mean... I'm not one of those literary critics that likes to make very specific claims for very specific genres. Um, I wrote a little while, um, after I started this book, I wrote an essay about a number of poems by W H Auden that take place in airports. Um, and I think you can make many of the same claims that I I make fiction in this novel for poetry like that. Um, so, Part of the reason why I moved to writing about novels is that these were works that I was teaching and that I was excited about and that I had ideas about. So it's not an especially genre-specific argument in the sense that I think only the novel is taking account of the extraterritorial dimensions of, of the 21st century. I think that many of those same arguments could be made of other artworks. And indeed, I talk at various times in the book about things that are happening in contemporary visual arts that are similar to what's happening in the novel. But thinking about geography is sometimes easier through the novel because setting is more clearly a determinant aspect of prose fiction, of imaginative prose fiction, in a way that it often isn't for, say, lyric poetry. Setting is a pretty weak element of the lyric. It's a stronger element of epic and narrative poetry. But setting is both a very important and a relatively under-theorized aspect in prose fiction. And so it seemed to me there was an opportunity to make an argument that would have more interesting formal and aesthetic qualities if I focused on the novel than if I were to say focus on poetry, which was the subject of my first book. Um, And then there's just the personal aspect. I, I I spent a long time writing a book about poetry and it was fun to instead train myself to write in a different formal and aesthetic register, to write about fiction and to think about the the, the poetics of the novel rather than thinking about all of the formal um, and, and aesthetic uh, dimensions of poetry that concern me in my first book. Mm-hmm.
1: So would you say that uh, extraterritoriality is uh, something that we can consider one of the characteristics of the novel of the 21st century? Uh, you did uh, mention uh, globalization and... Uh, yep. Uh, yes, the perception, the circulation, the dissemination of texts in the 21st century is quite different from the 19th century, for example, in the way right. they shape our understanding of the text uh, in general as well. And uh, it, it's indeed a compelling idea, a globalization as not lack of um, borders, but actually the existence of multiple borders. And depending on what borders we consider or what borders we uh, choose for our reading, uh will this way or the other shape uh, the um, uh, understanding of the text that we read uh, as well. Uh, So would you you say that it somehow uh, characterizes this uh, novel of 21st century, or we can still mm, compare the text of the 21st century to the text of the 19th century in these terms, in the terms of uh, extraterritoriality?
0: Well, I think to answer the last question first, yes. I mean, I think there are absolutely, we could find texts from the 19th century, from the 18th century, from the modernist period at the beginning of the 20th century, where the language, the concept and history of extraterritoriality would be a useful heuristic uh, for thinking about those texts. And I talk briefly in some parts of the book about some early 20th century texts, especially ones written by british and american writers visiting the international settlement of shanghai in which clearly they are aware of of extraterritoriality as a political and legal phenomenon and i argue that you can see the traces of that not just in the subject matter of their work uh, but in the formal and aesthetic dimensions of their work i do clearly though i'm making an argument that there is a Just as within the realm of political and legal history, there is a trend towards extraterritorial forms of jurisdiction over the later part of the 20th century and into the 21st century, so too I think that there are ways in which that history is present within the body of prose fiction that I study. (laughs) Which is to say extraterritoriality, if, I'm, if the c- empirical claim I'm making about the direction of, of political and legal history in the present is true, and, and if literature mediates political and legal history, which is one of the fundamental premises of my book and also of much materialist literary history, then there ought to be um, a, a commensurate effect within the world of literature itself. And part of the argument of the book is to try and demonstrate that that's the case, So, yes, I think that there are ways in which the literature of the present is more extraterritorial or where it's easier to see extraterritoriality in 21st century literature than in earlier periods. But that doesn't mean it's not there Mm -hmm. just because, you know, and it it ought to be there. It should be there. Again, if my historical claims are correct, extraterritoriality wasn't invented in 1945 or with the fall of the Berlin Wall in in 1989 or at any other moment. It's a history that has it has a very long history going back into, uh, you know, medieval and, 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 and late Roman imperial law. Um, and there are forms of it that we can see all the way back into prehistory, right? Part of what I'm trying to get us out of is making a kind of rote connection between political authority and making claims over land, Right? That's something which we think of almost as axiomatic within the modern period, right? What the Kings what the parliaments what the states rule over they rule over land but you go back into the period of time before the development of modern states and Those claims just aren't necessarily the case, right? It was for a very long time much more common to make sovereignty claims over persons than over places, right? The, the claim over land is incidental because people are on land; they farm it, they use it, they hunt on it, they gather crops on it. But the sovereignty claim was over the people, not over the places where those people were, which makes sense because those people would often be nomadic or semi-nomadic. So, if people are moving constantly across the land, then you know the, the utility of making a sovereignty claim over land is much smaller. So, again, the history is long, and, what, and if If extraterritoriality shows up in literature and culture, we would expect it to show up in literature and culture that's as long as that history. And I think that's the case. I mean, you look at a play like Oedipus Rex, for instance, by Sophocles, and the way that that play ends with the banishment, the self-banishment of the Mm -hmm. king who is also the criminal. And that's a a banishment beyond the territory, right, into a place, an open extraterritorial place of lawlessness. Um. And that's crucial to the meaning of that play, because if Oedipus is as guilty as he is of the crimes that are as bad as they are, incest and parricide, then how is exile anything like a consequential punishment for that crime? Well, it's consequential because to banish yourself from the city state is to subject yourself to the condition of being an outlaw, uh, to being beyond the protection of the law where anyone can kill you with impunity. Uh, so it's effectively a kind of sentence of death.
1: Uh, I'm thinking about the statement that you made about um, uh, books and uh, those characters which are mentioned in the books uh, or people in general um, um, that when they have some land and I'm thinking about those uh, examples or those instances uh, when the land uh, is occupied or annexed uh, by other um, countries or by other regimes, and how this annexation or this uh, loss of land may uh, impact um, the individual's perception of their territory and their land. And I'm wondering if you have instances of uh, this kind of understanding of the land or extraterritorial reality in your book.
0: You're with, thinking with about annex- annexation or occupation, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, and, and where people have, therefore, their own political ambitions or, or, or dreams or resentments get tied up in claims to land, as in sort of irredentist or nationalist movements or something like that. Um, yeah, I don't spend a huge amount of time studying that kind of thing in this book, partly because I'm interested in the opposite, mm-hmm. right? Where where people's uh, where we can think about forms of, of political ideology or political authority that are not directly tied to land. But yeah, it's it's obviously the case that just because political authority need not be tied to land, it doesn't mean that it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one of the instances of this. I'm interested in complicating this history, but there's a long history of thinking about the historical novel, uh, the genre of the historical novel that, for instance, uh, Georgi Lukacs writes about in his landmark book, The Historical Novel. And much of the criticism that follows after Lukacs emphasizes the way in which historical novels do the ideological work of nation building, of cultural nationalism. So that, for instance, and Catch's argument about this often focuses upon Walter Scott's novel Waverley. Right? Waverley takes place at the edges um, of, uh, of, of an increasingly industrializing and modernizing Britain. It concerns a war between uh, the Hanoverian government in Britain and Jacobite Catholic uh, land, uh, Highlanders in the north of Scotland, and... Um, and so, therefore, it's not just a war over territory. It's a war over the conditions and terms of modernity or between modernity and its opposite. And it's a novel, Waverley, which, which documents the defeat of the Jacobites and, therefore, the victory of uh, those modernizing, territorializing forces within Great Britain. Right? This is simplifying massively, right, both the novel and the argument about the novel. But so that's... You know, developing out of that kind of reading of the historical novel, there's a long critical tendency of thinking about the historical novel. Franco Moretti's more recent work continues this as doing the business of naturalizing the authority of the territorial state. And there's obviously, I think, a lot of power to that argument. But I, in the book, look at a bunch of contemporary historical novels by Amitav Ghosh, uh, the Indian writer, and by Hilary Mantel, the English writer, which seemed to me to be doing something different, Um, which rather than representing, rather than ending with these uh, politically and ideologically naturalized national territories, um, instead constantly seem to place uh, unknown or contested or variable borders at the center of the experience of history. And that's the same at the end of the novel as at the beginning. Um, So that rather than that genre doing the work of sort of simplifying and evening out uh, political space, they begin with contested and complicated political spaces and they end with contested Mm -hmm. and complicated spaces. And so they have the effect instead of naturalizing the idea that things like the claims I was making earlier, that borders are multiple and mobile in the present moment. So that's where I think, you know, it's not again, I'm not focused upon those moments where people are making claims to land, but neither am I denying that they exist. I'm just interested in the transition from one uh, of those variables, claims over land, as kind of hegemonic to a situation we find ourselves in, in which I'm arguing it's no longer hegemonic. It's not that it's not there. It's not that it's not real. It's just that it's not the only or the, not the dominant game in town.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, as you already mentioned, uh, you cover some like zones or places uh, in your book uh, among those um, international waters or uh, detention places, consulates. And these places do not only have some political status and power, but uh, they also, um, uh, to some extent, uh, place the individual uh, where they find themselves in some border dimensions, where their understanding of themselves as individuals and um, citizens, for instance, uh, shift. So, would you? Um, uh, would you? Uh, I, 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 I know that there are a lot of wonderful examples to illustrate uh, these um, uh, instances. But uh, would you choose your favorite one? And uh, um, would you describe uh, how the, these uh, shifts uh, take place?
0: Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, to choose a favorite one. I mean, a, a couple of favorite scenes. There's a moment in W.G. Sable's *The Rings of Saturn* where he travels to this peninsula it's called an island but it's not really an island because it's connected still to the mainland this is in suffolk um in the east of england and it's a peninsula called orford ness um and it's a very beautiful um and wild place it's a shingle beach it's you know constantly bombarded by the wind and by the waves um From the World War from World War One through World War II and even late into the Cold War, it was a really important testing site for the British military. First of all, for aerial gunnery on bombardment techniques after World War One, then for the development of radar in World War Two, and then during the Cold War, it was a really important site for the testing both of the British atomic bomb program. Um, and for the development of long range radars that were supposed to detect, you know, incoming Soviet bombers or missiles into NATO's territory. So it has a really long history as being this really secret base. And so it's both by virtue of its geography and by virtue of its history as a military base. It was for many years totally off limits to the people that live really only you know a quarter of a mile away across a river in the village of Orford in Suffolk. So after a while, with the end of the Cold War, it stops being a secret base. It gets opened up and it starts being managed by the British National Trust as an ecological wildlife area because it's also home to a lot of rare birds and lichens and plants and others. It's just a very interesting geologically and environmentally. It's a very interesting place. So Zabel starts walking there and there's a scene where he's sitting on the, the on the nest on the single spit, and he's looking back over at Orford, and he's seeing these windmills these, that are in the distance, and he imagines himself as being transported back in time and place um, to you know the period of, of, for instance, the Norman kings of England when they were building the castle and the church in Orford that you can still see there. This is part of when you know the Normans have invaded England and they're garrisoning the countryside. Um, as an occupying power. And so Zabel imagines himself pushed back into that history. And that's a really, it's a really beautiful moment in the book. It's, the writing is just astonishingly lovely. Um, but it's also a really important instance of how, for many of the writers I've studied, looking at these moments where you're transported out of the territory also become moments in which you're transported out of time. And so the experience of being an extraterritorial person or being in an extraterritorial place gives rise to an experience of extra temporality, right? of being in a different time, or place and being projected into the future or into the past or into some temporal experience that's neither really past or present. That's just some kind of weird flux. So another great example of that is, is one of the Shanghai novels I write about, Kazuo Ishiguro's When We Were Orphans. And that's, again, a great texts for thinking about how extraterritorial experiences like in the international settlement in shanghai that authors try and register the strangeness but also the ordinariness of that experience not just through playing with literary geography but by playing with narrative time so there's lots of ways that happens in in Ishiguro's book but the title gives you a good sense when we were orphans right so the idea that orphanhood is a condition that you can recover from. That you know your parents can die, and you're an orphan, but then you become unorphaned at some point, right? Um, and that you know it's not exactly a contradiction. You can imagine how you could get new parents, be adopted into a new family, something like that. But you know Ishiguro's book is doing nothing as simple as that. Right? Orphanhood becomes this really strange experience, um, which is marked by feelings of temporal contradiction and flux. that you're never not an orphan, but you're also uh, never wholly an orphan. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are just two instances where, you know, where these novelists are really thinking about how a relationship to extraterritoriality, it's both spatial and it's temporal. um, And it's not just an inert political situation, right? I'm outside the territory, I'm inside the territory, right? It produces all sorts of weird experiential and existential uh, conditions.
1: And any examples from uh visual art um, uh, area?
0: Um, well, there's one of the ones that I write about in the book is this really astonishing video work by the artist Mark Wallinger. So he's a, a British artist. He's best known for a, a, an installation that he did called State Britain, um, where he reconstructed a protest against the Iraq war. This is a protest that the British activist, peace activist, Brian Hoare put together and, and, you know, he lived outside of the parliament in London for almost a decade. um, And people would come and add posters and banners and things to his protest encampment. And at a certain point after it was torn down by the police, Wallinger reenacts it within the Tate Gallery. But the piece I write most about is also in the Tate in London, um, and it's a video work called Threshold to the Kingdom. And what Wallinger does quite simply is he takes a video camera and he records people as they are entering into British territory from the extraterritorial zone within an international airport, right? So that's the zone after you've landed, but before you've cleared passport control and customs. And part of a whole section of the book where I'm simply trying to answer the question, where are you? Once you've landed but you've not yet passed passport control or where are you once you've passed through passport control but not yet taken off so where culturally legally politically is that zone in an airport located what rules apply and what experiences does it give rise to so wallinger's part of wallinger's answer to that question is you know he films the people as they're moving through the gates so the gates open and close He then slows that video down and he sets it to an incredibly beautiful piece of Christian choral music um, that's part of the Vatican's Easter week services. Um, And this is a piece of music that for many years was kept secret. It was only ever played within one chapel in the Vatican and no one had access to the sheet music. It was this very cloistered uh, aesthetic and religious experience. So the effect of this is it makes people, it makes it look like this this totally ordinary experience of arriving in an airport is in fact arriving in heaven, right? You're passing through the pearly gates. You're entering through one kingdom, the kingdom of of, of mortal human life, into another kingdom, the kingdom of immortal, anointed, heavenly eternity. And that's a beautiful allegory for the way in which that experience, which for many of us is totally ordinary, of just getting off a plane and going home, is for refugees, for migrants, for asylum seekers, an incredibly loaded moment of judgment. Right? If you're escaping civil war or persecution in your home country and you're arriving in you know, the International Arrivals Hall at London City Airport, that moment of going through those gates is a scene of election right, or of salvation. It might literally make the difference between life and death or between being isolated and lonely and being with your family and your friends. Um, so Wallinger really, I think, really beautifully draws attention to the stakes of that moment. Um, and then also the, the uncanniness, the weirdness of the space that those people have just left. Right, where they're not yet in Britain, right? If you're an asylum seeker and you're in the international hall of an airport, you've arrived, but you've not yet arrived. Because until you cross through that barrier, the state has the right to detain you, to deport you, um, you're not safe, right? So that moment of those travelers passing through the gates is a moment that for some of them could really mean the difference between you know danger and safety or life and death.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so uh, what you just described made me think about those textual markers, uh, which help us uh, pay attention to this uh, extraterritorial experiences uh, in uh, in books, in the texts. Uh, and you um, did uh, already uh, mention some of them. Uh, those can be uh, some extraterritorial topoi, or those can be uh, comments made by characters or um, uh, comments uh, which are made directly or indirectly. Um uh, it also makes me think about uh, some maybe traumatic experiences which somehow intensify the extraterritorial, um, extraterritorial narratives or extraterritorial uh, experiences. Is that is that true? Because you did mention um, uh, something about um, uh, cultural nationalism and uh, I think that uh, some traumatic experiences would be a huge factor in uh, how... Um, Territory is perceived, or how uh, the individual uh, sees the shifts between national borders as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's the. I think that's absolutely true of, of a writer. And again, I've referred to him already a couple of times. But Sebald, um So for Seibold the experience of extraterritoriality is strongly linked to histories like that of the Holocaust, mm. um, of the Jews in Nazi Germany or Nazi occupied Europe. Um, so one of the first terms that I got really attached to in Seybold is a moment in his book, The Emigrants, where he's talking about the painter who he calls Hans Ferber, um, who, but who is in fact, you know, uh, based upon a, a real life English painter, Jewish, German English painter, Auerbach. Um, and, and this is a, a figure who has very clearly his his movement from Germany to England is a traumatic experience. And it's, a, it's experience of dispossession, of, of genocidal murder of his family and his friends and his acquaintances in the country in which he once lived. So it's not a happy story of post-national migrancy. Right. It's a, it's a story of a person who was violently and cruelly uprooted and sent to a place that he, in which he was safer, but to which he didn't belong. And Zabel just says very briefly about his character, Ferber, that his relationship to Germany would be forever an extraterritorial one or is forever an extraterritorial one. I'm quoting from memory here and almost certainly inaccurately, right? But that word extraterritorial in the German and in the English is the same word. Um, that dominates his experience. And then that's true also of, say, for instance, the protagonist of Seybold's novel Austerlitz, uh, which is also uh, crucially about uh, the experience of children who were relocated to Great Britain in the context of the Judea side in the 1930s and 1940s, in this case, through the transport system, um, in which uh, Jewish children in German-occupied territories were, were moved by train and boat into the U.K., and therefore saved, right, from extermination, but also at the loss of language, culture, family, a sense of home, um, and, you know, a deeply traumatic experience for many of those children, even though they were, you know, uh, undoubtedly saved from from far worse as a result. So there are obviously lots of instances, and we could think about many of the novels that I focus on that focus on histories of war and of, of, of empire, in which... The experience of extraterritorialization is a traumatic one, but the opposite also applies, right? There are also texts in which a certain kind of freedom is found within extraterritorial zones. And part of what that freedom is, freedom from, is freedom from an oppressive sense of homeland, of national identity, or of national language, so that the movement into an extraterritorial space or experience is a movement towards something like cosmopolitan promise or post-national promise. But I have to say, I'm really skeptical about that, right? I'm skeptical about precisely how much, well, let me put it in another way. And I think that there is a tendency within literary and cultural studies to romanticize the condition of the post-national Mm -hmm. Um, And part of what I'm trying to get at in this book is that even if we've moved beyond the situation in which the nation state is the hegemonic cultural and political uh, institution, um, we've not moved into a place in which it's an unnecessary point of reference, either in terms of our everyday political life or in terms of culture. And I've recently written about this very briefly in the context of the coronavirus pandemic in which you know there are so few short of a vaccine right there are so few weapons that we have against the transmission of the virus and one of the few really effective ones is things like border controls and quarantine zones right the, the reterritorialization of space so that we stop people moving from you know, Pennsylvania to New York if infection rates in Pennsylvania are higher than they are in New York or we stop people moving from the EU To the united states if infection rates are higher so the reinstitution of 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 controls to movement it's not an adequate response it's not the only response but it is arguably a necessary response to something like pandemic disease um so yeah there are you know there are you know what's more traumatic in that instance right The, the 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 letting down of borders or the putting up of borders um that's not an easy question for me to answer um, and the book doesn't try and answer those questions. It's there. It's it's trying to get at the the, the inextricability of terms like the national and the global. That it makes no sense to think about them separately, and it makes no sense to identify one of them with the sort of tar one of them with the brush of traumatic history and let the other one off the hook. Right? If we you want to get at the true nature of ...traumatic political or emotional experiences over the last hundred years or so, we need to pay attention both to territorial nationalism and its opposites. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask one more question. Uh, Because I'm interested in contestations, ethnic national contestations and contested issues... Uh, So uh, earlier, uh, uh, you did mention that um, uh, uh, extraterritorial experiences can uh, also pertain to contested borders and contestations, Mm -hmm. national contestations. So what uh, does extraterritoriality reveal about contestations in this case?
0: That's a very interesting question. Um, I think probably sometimes it's not going to reveal much Right? there are ways in which you know any explanatory concept is only going to be as good as its limits and any concept that tries to explain everything is a bogus concept as far as I'm concerned so you know I'm, I'm there are several moments in the book at which I, I try and really be candid about the things that my concept cannot explain mm-hmm. and there are going to be moments of say contestation over border territories or over, different kinds of sovereignty claims in which the language of extraterritoriality is not an especially useful language. So, you know, I'm from England, but I spent several years living in Scotland and politically I'm a supporter of Scottish nationalism. I think that the Scottish people have the right to uh, represent themselves within their own national territory if that's what they wish. Um, And I lived long enough in Scotland to see the ways in which uh, the Scottish people are poorly represented by a government based in London that's dominated by the voting interests of people in the southeast of England in the most populated areas of England now that's an area we could think about that as not a you know it's a civil debate right it's not a it's it's not a violent um, uh, site of contestation but it is a real political contest mm-hmm. Um in which sovereignty claims are at stake, it's not one that I think is especially usefully analyzed through the lens of extraterritoriality. Um, there are other instances, other histories, though, where it absolutely applies. Um, and, you know, again, I've referred to it a couple of times in the book, um, but the history of, of, of British-American-European imperialism in China is a story you cannot tell without the language of extraterritoriality. Again, it's not adequate, mm-hmm. because there's also a history there of, of violent colonial claims to territory. So Britain doesn't make those claims in Shanghai, but it does in Hong Kong. When Japan invades Manchuria and Korea and China in the 1930s and 1940s, they're not making you know, nuanced claims around extraterritorial jurisdiction, they're occupying territory um in a in a in a very direct way. Um, so again, I would want to be, it doesn't make for easy answers to questions like yours, but I would want to be nuanced and specific about how I would apply and where I would apply the concept. Mm-hmm. And also thinking about the ways in which it's different across time and across space. The forms of extraterritorial jurisdiction that are used, for instance, on the west coast of Africa by European imperial powers are very different from the ones that are being used in China, right? They're part of the same history, but we need to attend to the differences among them.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you still teach this course?
0: No, this was, I tend to do, I taught one graduate seminar that was just on the extraterritorial when I was first really putting the book together and starting to think of it as a book. Um, But to be honest, for me, it usually works better the other way around where research ideas come out of conversations that I have with my students, as opposed to I test out research theses by trying to teach them to my students. Um, I know that there are other people where it really works to sort of, you know, build classes around the subjects of their books or articles. For me, it it doesn't work so well. I don't know whether that might just be something to do with my own classroom practices or something to do with my own sense of myself, but the great thing about the origin story of this book, which gave rise to Tanya and I co-authored an article and published an article in modern fiction studies about Sebald and extraterritoriality. Um, and I owe her a great deal. Um, not just for that article and that experience of that independent study, but also, you know, it got me moving and got me thinking about the whole set of ideas that turned into the book. Most of which Tanya is not to blame for, right? They're, They're my fault. Um, But, you know, when we, when she and I began that independent study, we had no idea it was going to end up being, Mm -hmm. to the extent that it was, about extraterritoriality. I taught a graduate seminar on a different topic in which we read Zabold's The Emigrants, and Tanya just got excited about reading more Zabold and said, could we do this together? Could we spend a semester reading all of his work together? And so we did, and, you know, the result you know, it it went in a particular direction, but there was no assumption going in that that was how it was going to be. And that I like teaching produces surprises. Um, and it gives me ideas that I wouldn't otherwise have because in the classroom, I'm forced to Forced, I have the opportunity. I have the pleasure of being in conversation with smart people who've read the same things that I have. And that's a hugely generative environment uh, intellectually for me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, it goes mostly the other way, mm-hmm. from class I to see. research, not the other way around. I
1: see. So what's your current project then? Um, I'm in that stage in between um,
0: projects. I have a number of smaller things going. I've been working for a while on the problem of what I call the problem of late modernism, um, which is really a sort of partly a literary historical question about how we categorize a group of writers, many of them sort of self-consciously avant-garde, writing in in Britain in the period between the 1950s and the 1970s, um, and who don't fit well, either into established canons of modernism or of postmodernism. So that's something I've been working on. Um, I'm also thinking about writing a slightly different kind of book, a less academic kind of book that would be part cultural history and part family history. My mother's family were acrobats and movie makers in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so I've got very interested in that transition between a popular cultural world dominated by vaudeville and music hall and circus and one in which, um, movies, um, and, 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 you know, uh, in in which movie making and eventually television become dominant. So that part of my family, they ended up, some of them ended up in Hollywood in the, in the forties, fifties, making television shows as much as making movies, um, so that would be an interesting, you know, my, my family and my mother is, is getting older. It would be nice for me to, to do this while she's still alive and able to read it. Um, so that would be fun to do. Um, but at the moment, I can't begin that because the coronavirus has cut me off from the research archives in the UK that I would need to be able to access to start that work.
1: Well, anyway, I wish you good luck uh, thank you. and uh, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and uh, thank you for your research um, that uh, offers this um, a new perspective on how we can expand the textual dimensions. Uh, thank you so much, Matt.
0: Thank you, Natalia.
1: Today I spoke with Matthew Hart about his book, Extraterritorial, a political geography of contemporary fiction, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.